Amen. Hey, before you sit down, welcome one another. Greet one another around you this morning. So out on November 22nd, Saturday, November the 22nd, the men are going to the ASU Washington State football game. And any men that want to get involved with that, please go out to the men's table, sign up. A good group is already going from our fellowship. And I know that they would love to have you join them if you can. Then on November 15th and 16th, that weekend, the weekend before that weekend, we're looking for all able-bodied adults that can help paint the foster group home. So that weekend, the sign-up sheet is out there as well for that, or see Karen Wickens if you would like to be a part of the painting party at the foster group home. And that's the 15th and the 16th. Then we're coming back to November the 2nd, all right, which is actually the closest to us. A couple of things there. After the service on November the 2nd, the Lamberts are hosting a get-together for anyone that would be interested in a meeting about missions at their home. Uh, they're going to sort of do a potluck where they're going to provide the main dish, and they're asking for anybody who wants to be a part of that meeting to bring a covered dish to their home uh, for this meeting. This meeting, again, anyone that's interested in missions, all right? And Nathan was the gentleman that was up here playing the bass guitar this morning, okay? So if you'd like to talk with Nathan, email him or whatever, that information is in the bulletin. So we know that there's a lot of people interested in missions. Speaking of Sunday, November the 2nd, I ask you at the end of the service last week, if you had, w- would pray or consider uh, having someone in mind that if you could just give a Bible to someone, place it into their hands, would, who would that be? So here's what we're going to do. On Sunday, November the 2nd, all right, two weeks from today, if you bring a visitor with you to the Oasis that Sunday, they will get a compact edition of the Net Bible that I use to teach out of on Sundays and Tuesdays, all right? This is actually a cool little compact Bible. It's got a great concordance in it, maps, all kinds of stuff. Plus, it's the Net version. Now... If you can't get someone to come with you that Sunday, but you know of a family or a single person or whatever that you would like to give one of these to, we will have them available at the information table that you can take one with you and take it with you that that week or whatever to pass those out. All right? So that's Sunday, November the 2nd, Net Bible. All right? Uh... Come prepared. Like I said, if you bring somebody with you that day, then you could, they can just grab them as, as they come. If you want to take one with you to give out, they will be available. All right. Romans chapter 15 this morning. We've only got three more Sundays in the book of Romans. We're going to be in the first 13 verses of Romans 15 today. And then we're going to finish Romans 15 next Sunday, Lord willing. And then the first Sunday in November, November 2nd, we will be in Romans 16, finishing out our study of the book of Romans. By the way, speaking of our upcoming studies on Sundays, the month of November and December would be great Sundays to invite somebody to come with you to the Oasis. 
not only is Sunday, November the 2nd sort of going to be, you know, Bible day and we're going to be finishing up Romans, but then the Sundays after that, Sunday, November the 9th, we're having a special sort of Sunday here with worship in the Word, and I'm going to be doing another book study that day on the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, uh, and then November the 16th, we're going to be having a standalone message. And then starting November the 23rd, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, all the way up through till the Sunday before Christmas, I'm doing a five-week Christmas series this year. Uh, and haven't done one of those for a couple of years. So again, great. The whole month of November, December would be great Sundays to invite somebody to come with you to the Oasis. As we come to Romans 15, Paul is giving us marks of a spiritual fellowship. Marks of a spiritual fellowship. Now, the, the reason why he's doing this is because even in Paul's day, there were Christians who were primary look, primarily looking at being part of this church, this body of Christ, more as a social thing of, oh, we get together socially and we hang out with each other and, and we're friends and all of that. And not that that's bad, that's great. But God didn't design his church, the church that Jesus said, I will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God didn't primarily design his church just to be a place where people who call themselves Christians can hang out with each other socially and fill their social event calendars and sort of get together and just have friendships with each other. It's much more than that. It is to be a place of a spiritual fellowship, if you will. And the thing that makes a spiritual fellowship different from simply a social gathering of Christians is, is even seen in the word that we use for fellowship that the Greeks use, the word koinonia, where we get our concept of fellowship from. And, and in that whole concept of fellowship, it goes way beyond just hanging out with each other and being sociable to one another. That there is a transformative uh, property, if you will, about Christian fellowship. That, that what sets a spiritual fellowship of Christians apart? What sets a church apart that is gathering not just for social reasons, not just to be entertained by skillful musicians, not to just come and sort of, you know, have a, have a shot once a week to feel good and get through the rest of the week, but a truly spiritual fellowship is that in a spiritual fellowship, lives are being changed. There is transformation taking place. You see, Christians can be part of a local church that is primarily geared towards entertaining those who come. And it's primarily geared towards social and just getting people together and having them connect with each other and hanging out. But it goes to a whole different level whenever we start doing church and, and doing our Christian, you know, relationships with each other on a spiritual fellowship level then we know that we're at that spiritual level whenever God is using our time together to change us, to transform us, to make us more like Jesus 
Christ. And in Romans 15, the first 13 verses, what Paul's laying out for us really are the signs or marks of a spiritual fellowship. If I'm in fellowship with other Christians, if I'm going to a local church that is more than a social gathering of Christians, but is but we are coming together for the purpose of spiritual transformation and spiritual fellowship, then what are the marks or signs of spiritual fellowship? How do I know I'm part of a spiritual fellowship? The first thing that Paul tells us is, is that we will become, or we are becoming, selfless. Selfless. Notice what Paul says in the first three verses of Romans 15. He says, but we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but just as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul is saying there should be a growing selflessness within the body. And that we who are getting stronger spiritually shouldn't be just getting stronger spiritually to flex our spiritual muscles, to go around like people do physically. Look how strong I am. Ah. No, Paul says that when we are part of a spiritual fellowship of Christians and we're growing and God is transforming us, that we realize that part of the motivation and inspiration for you and I getting stronger is to help those who aren't as strong, to help those who are weak. And Paul is using the term weak here to speak of those who are a little bit more feeble or fragile in their faith. And listen, we all, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter what our walk with God is, we can even all of us at some, sometimes find ourselves in a weak place where either life or the circumstances of life or we've sort of been neglecting our, our spiritual devotions and whatever, and we can get to a weak place, then it's very good for us to be around Christians who not only are strong, but who are willing to support us for a while and get us back to a position of strength. Well, that kind of mindset, in order to do that, that, that takes people who are selfless, who aren't coming to a church just for themselves, like many Christians do today. But they're coming to a church because of what God can do through them to encourage and support and help their, their fellow brothers and sisters. In fact, notice the word ought in verse 1 of chapter 5. We who are strong ought. That means it's our duty, it's our obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to shun them. Not to be all about ourselves, but it is up to those of us who are in a position right now of spiritual strength to be willing to pick up and carry the weights of others who are weaker than us in the body of Christ. That's selflessness. That's when you and I know that we are part of something more than a social gathering of Christians. That we are part of a spiritual fellowship in which we are becoming more selfless and those around us are becoming more selfless. And when we come together, we're not just looking out for us, we're looking out for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, verse 2 can sometimes be misinterpreted as 
that God is calling us to be people pleasers. And we talked about, no, we don't want to become people pleasers. And you'll notice the little nuance of of difference here in verse 2. Yes, he is calling us to please our neighbor, but not just to please them for what they want, but to please our neighbor in order to build them up. In other words, he's saying that God wants us to be involved with each other in a selfless way, so that we can somehow promote the spiritual growth and advancement of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means to build up another Christian. To promote their spiritual growth and advancement in Christ. And so he's saying again, when we're part of a spiritual fellowship, I don't look at it just how it affects me. And yet again... We live in a world today, even amongst Christians, in Christian culture and amongst churches, where when people choose churches and are part of churches and do church and all of that, it's usually from a self-based perspective. What can the church do for me? Uh, I like this church because it does this for me. And it's never given a thought as to God may want me to be part of this body, not for what I can always get out of it, but for what I can give to the body. And I'm responsible. I have a duty as a Christian to go and faithfully be part of this body so that God can continuously use me to build up other people. And if you and I are sometimes in a weakened state and we're not very spiritually strong, then we all the more need to be part of a spiritual body of selfless people so that we can be built up. So that we who are finding ourselves in a weak place can become strong. Because you're never going to become strong by trying to do it out there on your own. That's not how God designed it. God said, you want to get strong spiritually? Then become part of a selfless body of believers who those who are strong will look out and they will try to, you know, encourage you and support you and pray for you and teach you and get you to a better place of spiritual strength. And then he uses Jesus as an example. He says, Jesus in his whole earthly life never focused inward. He was always focused outward. He says, Christ did not even please himself. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, my whole life was an example of selflessness. And that's what I call my people to. Not to be part of the church. Not to be part of a body of believers where it's about me but where it's about others and where I'm coming and looking out for others and where I'm asking God to make me strong so that when I find the opportunity to be around someone who may be struggling spiritually instead of kicking them to the curb or being condescending or judging them or being critical, I put my arm around them and I say, let's pray and let's try to get you to a better place. That's the sign of a spiritual fellowship. Selflessness. Second, The second mark of a spiritual fellowship is that it will be scriptural. The Word of God will be front and center in a spiritual fellowship because God uses His Word to change and transform our lives. Notice verse 4. For everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction. 
The word instruction here means to shape one's will, to renew one's mind. So even in that concept of instruction, he's talking about the change and transformation that God wants to bring about through his word. Everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction so that through, in, through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. Through the scriptures, we have endurance. See, God builds endurance and encouragement and hope into his word. And when God breathed his word and gave us his word, there are these great concepts, if you will, in them. And if we will saturate ourselves and immerse ourselves and become part of a spiritual fellowship of Christians where the scriptures are front and center, then we will start to realize I'm getting more endurance in my life. Which, by the way, this word simply means supernatural staying power. It's not something that we can muster up on our own. It's what God does for us through his word when we make his word center. He will build endurance into our lives. He will build encouragement. He will encourage us through the scriptures. He will give us hope through the scriptures. And so we need to be a scriptural fellowship. That's one of the marks of a spiritual fellowship. And that's why you can tell the difference between a church or a gathering of Christians that's primarily their motive and, and priority is just a social gathering where they hang out or whether their motivation is, I want God to change me. I want God to grow me. I want God to mature me. I, I want to become more like Jesus Christ. Then they're going to be looking for Scripture because they're going to understand it's through the Scriptures. And that's why many of you come to a church like this. Because the scripture light that you get in many churches today where they might teach on a verse and simply sort of, you know, mention a verse of scripture and it's 90% stories and all this doesn't really give you what you and I need to live life. See, if if we're going to get strong and we're going to stay strong spiritually, we can't go light on the scriptures. We've got to get into them more and more. Because it's through the scriptures that God builds hope and encouragement and endurance in our lives. So the first mark of a spiritual fellowship will be selflessness. The second mark will be scripture. Third mark, unity. Notice what he says beginning in verse 5. And we're going to come back to the beginning of this verse at the end. Now, may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity. That word means a disposition that sustains harmony. Not just one that brought harmony, but one that sustains harmony. And there's a certain disposition that God wants to build into all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ so that when we come together, instead of fighting with each other and stirring up strife and seeing division, we're... There's unity, a supernatural unity that only God can produce in such a diverse group of people. And you will find that kind of unity in a spiritual fellowship. Again, if a group of Christians are just getting together for social aspects, 
then you'll see many times where there will be dissension and division and all of this. But if a group of Christians are truly committed to being part of a spiritual fellowship, then they will yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit in their life and they will always be reminded that that the good of the whole is more important than me and what my self-agenda or whatever is. See? Because it's about being unified. He says, may God give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that together with unanimous consent. When is any human beings ever unanimous about anything? And yet God is saying, if you're my people and you are part of a spiritual fellowship, one of the evidences, one of the signs, one of the marks of spiritual fellowship is you'll be able to come together. You'll be able to have this unity and unanimous consent so that with one voice, literally one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is so sweet to God with his people because it even builds on what we just talked about. That a person has to be willing to be part of a spiritual fellowship and become more and more selfless. Because let's face it, if we bring self into a group of any size of Christians, that group won't be unified very long. Because I will promote self and what self wants and my own selfish agenda, and then that's going to cause immediate division in any group. I've got to be willing to lay down self. Which is why even Jesus told his followers, you want to be one of my disciples? You have to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. And to take up our cross means to die to self. It can't be about me. It's got to be about God and about others before it's about me. And that's what happens when people are growing to be more and more selfless in an environment where the scriptures are taught and where we're growing in the scriptures and where we are to a point where God uses all of that to bring us together, to knit our hearts together, to make us unified so that we can come together and with one mouth, literally, glorify God. So unity. Then in verse 7, he talks about the next mark of a spiritual fellowship. And I've defined this, verse 7, as vulnerability. Now, that doesn't mean that we make ourselves completely vulnerable to everyone all the time. That's not good. But what God is teaching here is that in a spiritual fellowship, we will be willing to be vulnerable Because Jesus models that for us as well. Notice what it says. Receive one another then, just as Christ also received you to God's glory. The word receive here means to grant access to one's heart. And to be willing to have companions and friends along with you for the journey. That's what the word receive means. And and Paul's simply saying, did not Christ do that with us? Did not Christ grant access to his heart? And yet, when he granted access to his heart, 
from us? Did that not make him vulnerable to us? Have we not inflicted pain on Jesus at times? Absolutely. Because God models something for us. That even though relationships can be painful at times, that the good that comes out of us being willing to grant each other access into our hearts and into our lives, that the positive things of that outweigh the hurt that we're going to get from sometimes people and sometimes relationships. If God would have been like we are many times in relationships, then God would have never sent Jesus Christ to this earth. And Jesus would have never been willing to come. Because Jesus would have been like many of us are. I'm not going down there and do that. I'm not going to open myself up to those people. I'm God. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to, I'm going to distance myself from those people because if I open myself up to them, they're going to hurt me. They're going to reject me. They're going to crucify me. It's going to be too painful. So I'm just going to stay up here in heaven, above it all, and I'm not going to come down and subject myself to the pain of entering into relationships and opening myself up to those people. No. Jesus is just the opposite. Jesus says, even though I'm God, and I don't have to do this, I want to have a relationship with them in spite of what it costs me. So I'm going to make myself vulnerable. As God, I'm going to take upon human flesh. And as God, I'm going to subject myself to being in relationship with people who will hurt me at times and reject me at times and cause me pain. Because even Jesus says that being in a relationship with us with all that we can bring negatively, he would still rather have that relationship than to put up that wall and close us off. And God says in a spiritual fellowship, we have got to be willing, again, in a measured way, not to everyone all the time, everywhere, but we've got to be willing to receive one another. We've got to be willing to grant each other access because remember too, build on what Paul's already said in Romans. God wants to use other brothers and sisters in Christ to promote my spiritual growth and build me up. And if I put up walls all around me and do not grant my brothers and sisters access to my heart, then God can't use them to build me up and vice versa. If we're going to put walls up around us, then God can't use you or me to influence them. And the reason why God calls us together, one of the main reasons is so God can use each of our lives to positively impact others. Will there be times where it's, it's negative instead of positive? Absolutely. But again, Jesus is the model. You and I have to be willing to go through the negative for the positive. Or else you and I won't have a relationship an earthly relationship to speak of in our life. And not only that, but if that's the kind of walls we put up around others on earth, then we probably have a few walls up between us and God as well. 
And the reason why God wants us to learn to be vulnerable towards each other is because he understands even a greater principle. We need to make ourselves vulnerable to him. And put ourselves out and trust, as we're going to see in a moment. So, selfless, scriptural, unified, vulnerable. Here's the next one. A place of service. Notice it says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the fathers. A servant. This word means one who reaches out to assist and help others lovingly, energetically, and persistently. In fact, in the original language, it's this great word picture of someone who's literally running through the dust. And you and I can, we can identify with that living in Phoenix. Running through the dust of an arid, dry climate in order to help other people. That's an unbelievable concept when you think that this word is applied to Jesus, the Son of God. Yeah, he was willing to come down to earth and literally run through the dust to help and assist others lovingly, energetically, persistently. And God is saying, in a spiritual fellowship, you will see people who are willing to serve like that. And by the way, let me say at this point, one of the reasons why it's so cool to be part of a church like the Oasis is because you are selfless and you do love the scriptures. And this is a place, for the most part, of unity and vulnerability and service. And all God is saying through his word to, to us is keep going, keep going with that, because that's a sign that I'm in charge. That's a sign that you're doing church by my design and you're doing it my way rather than making it man's design and man's way, which is the way many churches and the way many gatherings of Christians operate today. It's more about man than it is about God. And that's why it ends up being more of a social gathering than it does a spiritual transforming gathering. Again, you'll know you're in a spiritual environment whenever God's changing your life. When God's transforming you. That's when you know, oh. Now again, like, that's not always easy, is it? And it doesn't always feel good. And it's not always what we want. But it is always what we need. place of service. God calls us to serve each other. And again, the model, the example is Jesus Christ. One of the greatest examples was that night before he went to the cross where he took that towel and wrapped it around himself and washed his disciples' feet. You ever literally wash someone's feet? That's a humbling thing. Uh, many of you don't know this, but I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, back east. They were sort of an offshoot, if you will, of the Quakers and the Mennonites. So I can remember even as a little child going into not my own home church, but other brethren churches that were literally dirt floors. And one of the distinctives of the Church of the Brethren was that 
at least once a year as part of our communion, where we took communion with one another as we also washed one another's feet. That's, a, that's a something that has always stuck with me. I've always remembered that. And there was something about doing that that just entered you into a place where you really began to understand, Jesus did that. Jesus did this to those sweaty, dirty, dusty feet of his disciples. And can I just say, especially 2,000 years ago, talk about men in need of a pedicure. Oh my goodness, you know. And yet Jesus washed their feet. By the way, can I also tie this in before we move to the next point? Some people have asked me this over the years. Jeff, why are there so many different denominations? Speaking of a denomination like the Church of the Brother, why are there so many denominations? I'll tell you why. Because a lot of times we have failed on that third point about being unified. And we have divided as Christians over non-essential things. Going back to last week's message, we have majored on minor things and we have made very minor things that aren't essential really important. And we have, over the history of, of the church, held up traditions that were more important than the Word of God. And that's why we've ended up over the years with all these different offshoots and denominations. They are, God didn't create denominations. Man created denominations. And can I tell you, that's one of the reasons why when people ask, is the Oasis a non-denominational church? I tell them, yeah. And one of the reasons why is because I don't want this to be included in something that is, in a sense, man-made because somehow we started this church as a reaction or response to another church or some denomination that we don't like. To me, that's not a good example for the world to see. God says we should come together and be unified. And when Christians can't get along over history, what they ended up doing was creating denominations. The next word, a people of integrity. That's when you know you're in a spiritual fellowship where you're around people of integrity. Now, the word integrity comes from that whole concept of integration. In other words, where, where, unlike today, where people praise people that can compartmentalize things, God praises just the opposite. That, in a sense, integration is just the opposite of compartmentalization. Where I can have one thing real out of joint over here in my life, but somehow I can compartmentalize it, and the rest of my life looks like this. God says, I call my people to be people of integrity, of integration, meaning that the guiding principle is integrated, if you will, and seeps into every area and every compartment of my life so that it's, it's a whole, it's, it's unified. There's a, a continuous, consistent thing going on, if you will. That, that's how we get the word integrity. And what God is teaching here in these next few verses is that God is a God of integrity. What he promised to do, he did. What he said he would do, he did. So that God didn't say one thing and live another. God is a God of integrity. 
If God says, this is what I'm going to do, then God always does it. If God says, this is who I am, then God does everything consistent with who he is. And God calls his people to be that as well. If we say we're going to do something, then as a people of integrity, we do it. If we're going to be a people of integrity and we say, this is what we believe, then God says, are you living that? Because if you say one thing and you live another, then we're not people of integrity. We're actually people of hypocrisy. And I realize over the history of the church, one of the things that has kept people away from the church is this lame excuse that I don't want to be part of those bunch of hypocrites. Well, technically, we're all going to be hypocritical to some level, to some degree, every once in a while. No one, no human being can live a perfectly consistent life or else we would be perfect. But God tells those who use hypocrisy in the church to keep them away, that will never fly with God. That is not a reason to stay away from being part of a church. But God then does turn it around to those of us who are part of the church and say, but you know what would help? If you really weren't such hypocrites and that you were people of integrity, that people could see that you and I are not one thing on Sunday with one another and another thing Monday through Saturday. Or that we're one thing in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ at church, but we're another thing to our family and to our spouses and to our children the rest of the week. God says that's not integrity. That's not consistency. Don't say this is what we believe and this is who we are if we're not going to live it. If we're not going to do it. And that's what I get out of these next verses. Because notice it says in verse 8, Christ became a servant on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the ancestors. Truth always corresponds to reality. Something can't be true if it's not real. That's how you know whether something's true or not. That's why people can say, I don't believe there's a God. But because there is a God... That doesn't correspond to reality, so it's not true, you see. I can say, I have thousands of dollars in my checking account, but if I've only got five, then that's not real, that's not true. Truth always, always, always corresponds to reality. And so what Paul is saying here is, when Christ became a servant, it was because that was what the truth of God said. God said, this is, this is what's going to happen. And reality then of who Christ came to be corresponded with God's truth. Reality and truth came together there. Then he's starting to use all these verses beginning in verse 9, talking about also that God is also the God of the Gentiles. And that God always had in his truth this concept that Gentiles, not just Jews, would be part of the kingdom of God. And that's reality. That corresponds to truth because throughout the history of the world, even though God chose Israel to be the chosen nation, God never rejected Gentiles. God was always reaching out to Gentiles and God was always wanting Gentiles to be part of his kingdom. So God's truth 
corresponded to reality. And that's how I get the word integrity from and the concept of integrity. Because what Paul's simply saying here is, let's remember that God is a God of integrity. Everything God has said in his word, everything God has revealed about himself, he's always been consistent with. God has never been a God that said one thing and did another. And God calls his people to be the same. So in a spiritual fellowship, it will not only be a place of service, but there will be people of integrity. And then finally, verse 13. A spiritual fellowship, a mark of spiritual fellowship will be a God-centered fellowship. Not man-centered, like many churches and gatherings of Christians are today where it's more about man and what man wants and man's design rather than focusing on God. In a spiritual fellowship, you and I will never be the focus. The pastor will never be the focus. The leaders will never be the focus. We as the people will never be the focus. The primary focus will be God. Then the next will be each other. Finally, it will be self, you see. You say, how do you get that out of verse 13? Well, notice what it says. It says that God is the God of hope. And remember back in verse 5, I said I wanted to come back to that at the end. Remember he also said in verse 5 that God is also the God of endurance and comfort. And so what Paul is saying is that God is the one who gives me hope. God is the one who can give me endurance and comfort. God is the one who can give me joy and peace. Because notice in verse 13, he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But folks, that's only if we are living in a God-centered environment. If my church is God-centered, if my life is God-centered, then I will experience peace and joy and hope and endurance and comfort. But if my life is man-centered, if my church is man-centered, then I might want to experience God's peace and joy and have hope and all these things in my life. But they will be lacking in my life because the only way to gain these things is to center my life in the God who can give me those things. If my focus is on me or any other human being, and yet I so want to be at peace. God, I want your contentment. I want to be content. I'm I'm tired of being so restless and running from this thing to that thing. I want contentment. I want tranquility in my mind. And God, I want joy. I want real joy in my life that regardless of the circumstances of my life, day in and day out, I have this deep inner sense of well-being. And God, I want your hope. I want to be able to face life instead of with anxiety and worry and fret and, and angst. I want to be able to face the future with confidence. Then God says, center your life on me. Because I'm the God of hope. I'm the God of endurance. I'm the God of comfort. And when you and I get our focus in the right place, you and I will be amazed that the things that we want, like peace and joy and hope and all of these wonderful things, will begin to flood into our lives. 
Because notice, Paul uses the word fill there. May the God of hope fill you. And when God begins to, when we begin to center our lives on God, rather than things and other situations, God doesn't just trickle stuff in. God pours it into our life. God overflows us with joy and peace and hope. And that's where we begin to experience the abundant life that God wants us to have. God is basically saying to his people today, if you'd get your attention off of all this other stuff and get it on me, be a lot better for you. And yet we see today even many Christians, no hope, no confidence as far as the future goes. Anytime some, you know, News flash, break. Can I just tell you, I'm so over the breaking news thing. Everything is breaking news anymore. Everything. And yet that's the world we live in. And there are Christians that just get so upset and obsessed by every little news flash that comes over and it just, it just twists their heart. And then they, their mind and, and, and their lives are just filled with so much, again, anxiety and worry and all that because they're starting to focus in a direction that's not God. When we center our lives on God, God becomes so big and great in our vision that it blocks out all this other stuff. And, and that we realize that when God is the center, we begin to see who God really is. And we know that in spite of what's going to go on in this world and what we're going to face, God is still on the throne. He still rules. He's still in control. And nothing is going to come into our life that God and I can't handle. But that's only when we center our lives on God. So Paul is saying to the Romans, And he's saying to the church in Chandler, Arizona, 2,000 years later. Here are the marks of a spiritual fellowship. And he's basically encouraging us that if these things are here, let's keep them here. Because this is the way God designed the church to be. This is the way God designed Christians to come together and be in fellowship and relationship with each other. Not just to have friends. Again, friendship's great. And, you know, one of the encouraging things I've heard from many of you in this church, and I think it's awesome, is that many of you have told me, I have more friends in this local church than I've ever had in my Christian life. I mean, people that I really consider my friends. That's awesome. But, folks, if that's where it... If that's where it ends, it's just that we've got a bunch of friends, that doesn't go far enough. It's got to be more than friendship. It's got to be more than just being sociable with each other and filling our social calendars with all these things that keep us busy as if we're not busy enough. There's got to be that spiritual element that brings change to our lives that transforms us to be more like Jesus. And that's what Paul lays out for us today. We only sang two songs at the beginning because I wanted to sing two songs at the end. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And as as we prepare to respond to God, 
I would like to call us that as we stand and sing this first song, that this is a song that, that can really help us to focus on God. To say to God, God, I, I realize once again, my life isn't about me, it's about you. And being part of the church and being with other Christians, it's, it's, it's about you. It's about learning to center my life on you. And God, that's what we're going to do for these next few moments. So let's ask God to sort of get rid of all the distractions in our mind and all the thoughts that are not God-centered. And let's ask God for this first song to take the words of this song and the melody of this song and just hearing my brothers and sisters in Christ sing along with me, help me, God, to center not even on them or on me or whatever. Help me to center on you. And help you, God, to, be get, to become so big in my life that, that you're just sort of like that massive sun that just blocks out everything else and all I see is you. May we stand and sing this song, Majesty, together. Hmm. Forever I am changed by your love. God wants to transform us and change us. And as we said earlier in the message today, God doesn't want us just to become strong so that we can flex our own spiritual muscles and be strong in ourselves. God wants to fill us with His strength, with His power, with His hope, with His peace, with His joy so that God can use our lives to fill other people with hope and joy and, and so that people can see it's possible for a human being, even now, 2014, in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in our world, that, that someone can still be filled with joy and peace and hope? Absolutely. Because these are supernatural gifts that come through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we sing this next song about hope, I want us to sing this not just for ourselves, to say, God, I, I not only want you to fill me with hope so that, so that I have this great confidence in the future that you have planned and promised for me, but so, God, that you can fill me with such hope that as I walk through my day, as I interact with people out there in the workplace and, and at school and in my neighborhood and stuff, people can see this hope that only comes from you. And, Lord, that in some way I, I might be able to bring the possibility of hope to people that are hopeless. Because, folks, we are living in a world of hopelessness. We are living in a world of grim today where people just want to pull the covers up over their head and not even get up out of bed anymore because it's so bad. And God is saying, center your life on me. And in spite of what you see going on in the world today, you can live each day filled with hope because I'm the God of hope. And the best days for us as believers in Jesus Christ is ahead of us. They always are. And God has this glorious eternal future awaiting us. And that's what God wants us to focus on. He wants us to look past and be able to look past the present pressures of today. And to look at what He's promised and what He will do for us one day. And so may God fill us with His hope today. Not just for us, but for others. And may we raise this song up 
and sing it with everything we've got, not just for ourselves, but so that others may hear and be inspired and encouraged by the hope that only God can give. Let's sing this today, a song of hope because of God. Glory. Amen. A couple of reminders. Tuesday night, Bible study, cafeteria, love to have you. For those of you that don't know, just also, just a cool thing. Every week we have adults, teens, and children, parents dropping off their children, who are not part of the Oasis Church, but who come on Tuesday night because they see a difference. And they're not, you know, they're not part of us on Sunday yet, but they see a difference. And that's why they want to be there on Tuesday night. That's so cool. So we invite you, if you want to be there, 7 o'clock Tuesday night. Also, again, just a reminder, any of you missions, Nathan and Mandy, this is Nathan over here. Uh, Please talk to him, email him. November the 2nd, right after church at their house, they're going to have a meeting for anyone that wants to talk and sort of begin to develop an even greater vision for the Oasis Missions Ministry. And then also, again, Sunday, November 2nd, Let's call it Bible Day. I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, we, we are about the Bible here. Um, so if you bring someone with you, they'll get a net Bible, just like I teach out of uh, Sunday, November the 2nd. And if you can't get them here, but God has laid a family or someone on your heart that you would like to give one to, because as I said last week, I know most of us in America have two or three or more Bibles laying around our house. And sometimes they're never picked up or read. But sometimes if someone gets a Bible from someone sort of as a gift, there's a meaning attached to it, there's something attached to it, and they'll pick up and read something that someone gives them rather than something that's been laying around their house for years. So some of you may have somebody in mind, you go, you know what, I'm going to get one of these. And I know of a neighbor, a coworker. Someone I go to school with, whatever, I know that they, and I can tell them, hey, this is, this is the version my pastor preaches out of and teaches out of, uh, just like you to have this, no strings attached. Uh, we'll have those available for you on November the 2nd. Hope you have a great week. Good to see all of you. Let's close in prayer. God, we pray today that, that even this hour that we have spent together has been an hour where we've centered on you, God where we are looking to lift you up, elevate you, raise you up in our minds, in our hearts, and in our eyes. Because God, we want to be a God-centered fellowship and a God-centered people. That's the only way, really, God, you've called us to live. And that's the only way we can even survive. When we get our eyes off of you, just like Peter on the water, we're going to sink quickly. Because we're going to get our eyes on all the circumstances and troubles of this world and the troubles in our own lives. And we're going to get our eyes off of you and onto other people. And God, we're going to sink real fast. But when we keep our eyes focused on you, God, and we center our lives on you, you give us the supernatural ability to rise above it all. To literally be able to walk on the water while others around us are sinking. Because we're building our lives on a foundation that is always firm. And that's the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
God, help us not only to keep our lives centered on you for the rest of this day, but help us to begin to center our lives on you tomorrow and for the rest of this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you. We'll see you next week.